0: We also touched on um, the golden age of India that began at this time under the Gupta dynasty and lasted almost 200 years and at the same time the Mayans in Central America were flourishing as a civilization and they um, flourished as a civilization from about 350 to 900 and then they suddenly disappeared. So uh, here in the Mid fourth century in the around the 350s, um, we're going to begin tonight looking at uh, a saint who was born in 354, and then we're going to look at a couple of others. Um, so let's pray, Father. We thank you for this day, we thank you for Lord, this day called All Saints Day when we do remember and celebrate your saints, past, present, and future. We thank you, Lord, that we are counted saints, not because of some goodness that we have performed, but because of the goodness and the grace and the mercy extended to us in Jesus Christ. For the scripture declares that we all are saints or holy ones in Jesus Christ. We've all been called saints. We've been called a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people called forth to make your praises known. And Father, I pray that you would work in us by your spirit, mold us and shape us. Father, and transform us into a people that would give great glory to you and the earth. Father, thank you for being able to look back upon the lives of your saints and to learn and be encouraged and motivated by their own lives and the own work you've called them to. Father, help us to walk worthy of the calling with which we are called, that you would be glorified in your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to start tonight by looking at Augustine of Hippo, um, born in 354 A.D. He died in 430. Um, I want to look at three saints in particular because they've had uh, really profound impacts on history and not just the history uh, of the world they lived in, but these three s- saints still touch us today uh, because of their faithful work. Um, Augustine was born in 354. He was born Aurelius Augustine, better known as Saint Augustine. His mother was a devout Christian. Her name was Monica And his father's name was Patricius, and he was a Roman official and a pagan. So he had a Christian mother and an unbelieving father. But both of these parents recognized in Augustine, their son, a very gifted and talented uh, person. And so they both agreed that he needed to receive a proper education And so Augustine was educated in Carthage. Carthage was a city um, on the north coast of Africa. And it was um, a commercial hub and a, a hub of commerce and trade. And it was a metropolitan city. He was educated there. And Augustine was especially gifted in rhetoric, the gift of speaking and writing. Um, <clears throat> in 384, at the age of 29, he moved to Milan. Now, Augustine was raised by his Christian mother, but Augustine did not embrace the faith of his mother. Augustine, in his intelligence, felt like Christianity was for the simple-minded and the ignorant. In other words, Augustine felt he was too intelligent to believe something as strange and as impossible as Christianity. Um, And so he goes to Milan, and his mother introduces him to a gentleman by the name of Ambrose, Ambrose was um, the bishop of Milan. And Ambrose was almost as impressive in his intelligence as Augustine was. And so what happened when Augustine met Ambrose, he met someone who he respected intellectually. And Augustine worked with, was educated by, Ambrose was his teacher, and so Augustine was continuing his his quest for education and growth in, in the things of the world and knowledge of the world. Um, but when he looked at Ambrose, he saw someone who was a rival intellectually, and he couldn't figure out why this guy, who was so obviously intelligent, was also so obviously faithful and devoted to Christianity. And out of that relationship between Augustine and Ambrose, Augustine began to be challenged concerning his faith or his lack of faith. And so the life and the witness of Ambrose challenged Augustine's assumptions about Christianity. And in 387, according to Augustine, in his own words, the day came when he could no longer resist the call of God upon his life. And so as the story goes in Augustine's uh, autobiography, Augustine was in a garden meditating. And as he was meditating in this garden somewhere, from somewhere, he heard these children chanting what sounded like Take it and read, take it and read. And Augustine there meditating in his garden had a copy of the scriptures near him and he picked up a copy of the scriptures and opened to Paul's letter to the Romans and read Romans chapter 13 verses 13 and 14. And here's what Augustine read when he responded to this chant of the children, take it and read. Augustine opens the Bible, or the scripture, to Romans chapter 13, verse 13 and 14, and reads, let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Now when Augustine was 18 years old, he... he, He had a child out of wedlock. And so Augustine did not live a Christian life. He lived a quite wild life um, and had a deep thirst for worldly knowledge. In in studying the scripture back in that time, the universities and, and all of that were run by the church. And so Augustine couldn't escape the influence of Christianity. He just ignored it. He just thought that it was for the simple-minded until he meets Ambrose. And so as he's sitting there struggling with these things, he hears this chant of some children somewhere, and he reads these two verses in Romans 13. And according to Augustine, it was at that moment that he became a true believer in Christ. In his words, and these are the words of Augustine out of his autobiography, Augustine writes, It was like the light of faith flooded into my heart, and all the darkness of doubt was dispelled. As as, uh, he was soon baptized with his son uh, the night before Easter. So he comes to true faith in Christ, and then he, he with his son are baptized uh, on Easter Eve. Um, in, that was in 387. In 391, Augustine is ordained a priest, and by 395, he had become the Bishop of Hippo, a city in North Africa. It is the present-day city of Anaba, Algeria. And so it was said of Augustine and his ministry as Bishop of Hippo, one historian put it this way, from this foot of earth, he moved the world. And one way that Augustine moved the world was through his writings. And so he wrote his autobiography entitled Confessions. And what's interesting about Augustine's autobiography, Augustine wrote it to God, So he writes this autobiography and he is addressing God in the autobiography. It was kind of a shocking work in the day because in this work, Augustine was completely transparent about who he had been. And so he doesn't hide anything about his sinfulness. And It was kind of shocking uh, for people to read that kind of, of information about someone in their own words. But Augustine wanted people to know what God had redeemed him from, what God had saved him from. And that when God saved him, it wasn't because Augustine was looking for God. It's that God reached into the darkness and saved him and gave him eyes to see. Or as he writes, light flooded into his heart and dispelled the darkness, and the doubt. Another book that he wrote was a book called On the Trinity. I believe it took Augustine about 15 years to complete this work. And Augustine wrote this book so that the Christian church would have a better understanding of this doctrine of the Trinity. Remember, at this time, we talked about this, this was one of the reasons that at the Council of Nicaea in 325, the Nicene Creed was issued. So the church leaders in 325 wrestled with these doctrinal issues and then they, pro- they, they issued this creed that made very clear statements about who the Father is, who the Son is, and who the Spirit is. That they are co-equal members of the Godhead and they are, bu- they are all three worthy of to be worshipped. And so Augustine writes this book on the Trinity to help um, foster understanding of this key doctrine of the Orthodox faith. But his masterpiece, uh, his, um, his greatest work was a, a titled The City of God. Um, Augustine writes this at a time... Of the Western Roman Empire when the Western Roman Empire is beginning to crumble. So the Roman Empire proper falls officially in 476. And so Augustine is writing this, Um, he died in 430. So he's writing this um, in the late 300s, early 400s. He's writing these books. And we're seeing the beginning of the fall of the Roman Empire. The city of God was written to the Christians in the empire so that they would understand that the cities of men would always fall. But the city of God, the city that God was building, the holy Jerusalem, the cities whose Builder and maker is God, the city with foundations laid by God himself, that city would never fall. And so that is his greatest work uh, that transcended his life, that lives on still to this day um, past the death of Augustine in 430. So the writings of Augustine outlived him, and so... If you fast forward to the Reformation, so yesterday was uh, October 31st, it was All Hallows' Eve, and it was on October 31st that Martin Luther nailed his 95 thesis to the door of Wittenberg Castle. Well, Martin Luther was greatly influenced by the works of Augustine, as was John Calvin. So the doctrines that came out of the Reformation, the doctrines of grace, the five pillars, uh, the five solas of the Reformation are largely works and truths that came out of, yes, the scripture. But it was men like Augustine who wrote about these truths to teach the church so the church would have better understanding And so Augustine was very instrumental in the lives of the reformers, all the way from Wycliffe, Luther, and Calvin. And so uh, Augustine of Hippo is a saint that we uh, should thank God for because God has used him in a great way and still uses him to this day to impact the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. All right. Any thoughts? Anybody have anything about Augustine that um, or any questions? Anybody? um, You know, we we a lot of times in the church, in our modern times, we don't spend a lot of time looking back at these men who have given us so much. And we have what we have, and we don't know the names of the people that have given us what we have. Uh, but yet God has used men throughout the course of his story to lay these foundations so that we're, we're standing on the shoulders of giants, literally reaping the benefits that they uh, have labored for us uh, and we don't even realize who they are, and very often don't even know their names, but we're we're reaping the benefits of their work. Augustine of Hippo is one of those saints who we still reap the benefit of his work. I've heard it said about Augustine that, uh, well, really about Calvin. Calvin, you know, people say you know, Calvinist. Um, yeah. You know, Calvin was really an Augustine, Augustine. Yes. And then Augustine. was really a Pauline. Yes. Paul, That's right. It all originates in the scripture, that's right. But Calvin drew greatly from the writings of Augustine. And Augustine, of course, was going right back to, I mean, there in his autobiography, when he's sitting in that garden, it is the writings of Paul that he opens up. And so, yes, that's, that's a great point, And I believe that is absolutely true. Um, any other thoughts about Augustine? So there's Augustine and there's Augustine. I've heard it, I've heard it said by, um, you know, people that I would respect. So I don't know that. And maybe it depends on whether you're in America or Britain. You know, is it a, is it a monastery or a monastery? So, you know, <laughs> is it a laboratory or a laboratory? I, you know, Augustine, yeah, Augustine. Yeah, his mother did pray for him unceasingly, and yes. So there's a lot there. You know, you think about as parents, and we pray for our children, our grandchildren. Um, those prayers are more powerful than we realize. And, what, you know, uh, whether we will see them or not, I know for, in my own life, uh, I, when I came to faith in Christ... Uh, and I knew my grandmother was a faithful woman. I, I, I never had conversations about the Lord with her. She died when I was very young. But, but I remember her. But more importantly, I remember my mother and my aunts talking about her faithfulness to God, even though I wasn't raised in church. And my aunt, my, my oldest aunt, uh, the same way, who lived in Austin and who I did go to church with just out of a courtesy when I moved to Austin in 1981. And, um, and I know that they prayed for me. And um, after I came to faith in Christ, I realized, you know, um, yes, it is the grace of God who saved me, but I don't believe it was the grace of God who saved me apart from the prayers of my grandmother, my aunts, and, and other people who who believed God for my salvation, and many other people. that's a great point, Lou. What else about Augustine? I kind of like the way that sounds, Augustine. What do you think, Bennett? What do you like? Augustine, Augustine. Hey Siri, is it Augustine or Augustine? Should Augustine's name be pronounced Augustine or Augustine? David Horner, professor of biblical and theological studies at Biola University seeks to answer the age-old dispute. Ah, so we're not the first ones to wrestle with this. Hmm. Augustine's Latin name is properly pronounced Augustinus with the accent on some syllable. The pronunciation of Augustine preserves the accent pattern when the final syllable is dropped from the Latin name. So, I'll spare you the rest of it. So maybe Augustine Augustine preserves the, uh, the pattern there. So... If I can remember from here on out, we'll just call him Augustine. All right. Anything else on our friend Augustine, a.k.a. Augustine? All right. The next saint we will look at tonight uh, is St. Jerome. Jerome of the Latin Vulgate fame. Now, Jerome was born in 347, and he died around 420, but what Jerome is most known for is his translation of the Scriptures into Latin. And that work of translating the Scriptures, the Greek and the Hebrew Scriptures, into Latin, that work Spanned a 23 year period. So from 382 to 405, Jerome worked to translate the scriptures into Latin. Now it's not that there were no Latin translations of the scriptures, it's that there was no single volume that had been compiled and put together with Old and New Testament books uh, into one volume. And so the Vulgate is the first complete Latin translation of the Bible. As I said, a 23-year project spanning 382 to 405. And so for 23 years, Jerome practically lived in a cell-like cave with heaps of books and papers all around him, as he pored over the details of the scripture in an effort to faithfully and accurately pull together and translate the scripture into one complete volume, uh, Jerome, like Augustine, was a very gifted and extremely intelligent intelligent person. And Jerome called the Bible a divine library. Because remember, the Bible, though we call it one book, it's actually 66 books. 39 of the Old Testament and 27 of the New Testament. And so Jerome called the Bible a divine library. Now during this time of translating uh, the scripture into Latin, into what would become the Latin Vulgate, In 393, at a meeting in Hippo, church leaders officially standardized the books of the New Testament. And so at this time, in the Roman Empire, Latin was the language of of the empire. So across the remnants of the Roman Empire, Latin was the language. It was the language of the common people. Now it's interesting, we just had uh, yesterday or this past Sunday, Reformation Day. Yesterday was All Hallows or All Saints' Eve, uh, October 31st where Luther nails his 95 Theses. And one of Luther's main complaints was that nobody can read the Bible because no one reads Latin anymore. Well, in 1517 that was the case, but here in 382 to 400, Latin was the language of the common man in the empire. And so there was a need to translate the Bible into Latin just as the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures had been translated out of Hebrew and into Greek in the centuries prior to the birth of Jesus. The Septuagint was the work of of 70 Hebrew scholars who translated the Old Testament scriptures from Hebrew and Aramaic into the Greek language because at that time, two centuries before the birth of Jesus, most Jews, many Jews throughout the then Greek Empire, or what was the remnants of the Greek Empire, divided, you remember, by... Alexander upon his death into four regions ruled by his generals. And so at that time in in the world, most Hebrews didn't speak Hebrew anymore. They spoke Greek because that, at that time, was the language of the empire, the language of commerce. And so now, fast forward um, to, to our time in 382 when Jerome begins his project Latin is the language of the people and there is no, there's no single volume of the scripture translated into Latin. And so the majority, the vast majority of people were not able to read the scripture because it didn't exist in a volume translated into Latin. And so uh, Jerome was tasked with translating The scriptures, both Old and New Testament, from Greek and Hebrew into Latin. And so the word vulgate means common. It's where we get our word vulgar from. Something that's vulgar is just something that's common. Um, So the word vulgate means common. In other words, the scripture was translated into the common language of the empire, so common men could read it. The Latin Vulgate was used by both scholars and commoners alike. So as long as the common language of everyday life in Europe was Latin, people had a Bible. Now, I say they had a Bible. Um, In 400, in the year 400, there were no printing presses. So how did you get a copy of the Bible? In 400, that's right. It had to be hand-copied. And so copies of the scripture were very precious, very expensive. So your average person uh, who probably had a very meager uh, standard of living could not afford a Bible. Uh, this is one of the reasons why there were so many pictures everywhere in churches. The scenes of the Bible were pictured So people could come in and they could see and understand what was happening because they didn't have a Bible like you do to take home and read every night. Um, And so it was going to be another 450 years before we get to a printing press. Uh, I mean another um, 1,050 years before we get to a printing press. So at this time, Bibles were a precious commodity. Uh, but this is what monks, monks and monasteries, scribes did. They they spent their days copying the Bible. When I, when I went to Ireland uh, in 2009, we went to Trinity University and we saw the Book of Kells. And the Book of Kells uh, is uh, uh, the copies of the Scripture written out by Irish monks, and they would illuminate. They would, you know, they the first letter. Uh, of the verse would be very large and very artistic and glorious. And they would, they would illuminate the pages of scripture and they did all of this intricate work by hand. Um, And and so it was something that men were called to. What's amazing is that this has been going on for centuries leading up to the time that Jerome is translating the, the Bible into Latin and so the Hebrew scribes, uh, throughout history, had copied, hand copied the scriptures, and and we know from archaeological evidence because we have thousands of manuscripts, uh, in in Greek and in Hebrew. We have so many manuscripts, and the consistency is, it's just unbelievable. So this myth that the Bible's like a game of telephone where uh, we have no clue what it really originally said. No, we know exactly what it originally said because the manuscript evidence shows us that over the course of many centuries with many writers, many different scribes in many regions of the world all copying the scriptures independently of each other across time and geography, those manuscript families can now be examine side by side, and we see that they are spot on. Um, There are no no things that would cause us to question the validity of the Bible whatsoever. Uh, And even in our modern English translations, you can trust your Bible. You can trust it. Yes, that's right. They were trained. That's what they were trained for. And uh, they were trained in in every way you can imagine to be able to do that, from the languages to just all kinds of ways, um, to to be able to copy those faithfully. Um, So, the Vulgate became the Bible of the common man, and the common language. Now, Jerome was also the guy who gave us the Apocrypha. Now, the Apocrypha already existed. So, who knows what the Apocrypha is? Anybody have a Bible with the Apocrypha in it? So... um, so, for instance, a, a new, um, what is it, the the RSV or the NRSV, the Revised Standard Version Bible, uh, has the Apocrypha in it. Not the ESV, but the RSV and the NRSV. I've got one at home. I've got an RSV at home, and it's got the Apocrypha in it. The Septuagint, when the Hebrew, 70 Hebrew scholars translated the the Old Testament scriptures into Greek. They also translated what we know as the Apocrypha, those 14 uh, books or literary works uh, that came out of that intertestamental period. And so it was Jerome who first named the group of literature that is called the Apocrypha. The word Apocrypha means hidden things, and it refers to the 14 ancient books that are placed between our Old Testament and our New Testament. So if you look at a Catholic Bible, the Apocrypha is in there. There are some Protestant Bibles that it's also in there. Anglican Bibles may have it in there. I don't know if they all do, but, but I know my, uh, my old RSV Bible at home has it in there. Um, and so these 14 books have great historical and literary value. They're not books that we should just, discard because they're not inspired. Uh, they're in the Septuagint, but the the Hebrew scholars did not consider them part of the Hebrew canon, but they were part of Jewish history and part of Jewish literature, and so they were preserved. And so Jerome uh, can be credited not with the origin of what we call the Apocrypha, but he's the guy that titled it, and that title has stuck with us today. It's what we call this set of 14 books. Um, but it was never, they were never recognized uh, as being inspired. Uh, and so especially when we get to the Protestant Reformation, the Protestant Reformation um, was very, um, it's, it's why many of our Protestant our Bibles now do not have the Apocrypha in there. Because they are not considered to be uh, inspired by God and nor should they be. Um, but they're worth reading because it is real history and it, re- is, it is beautiful literature. It's not that they have no value. All right, any questions about Jerome or the Vulgate or the Apocrypha? Or any comments there? So did Jerome translate the Latin as well? Yes, he did. hmm Well, in the Old Testament, so uh, he would have relied uh, probably on both. So uh, he, he did, he did uh, read both Greek and Hebrew. He was more proficient in Greek. But he did most of this translation work in Bethlehem, in the Middle East. And uh, so his proximity there, he grew in his proficiency in Hebrew over the course of those years of translating. And he used both Hebrew and Greek manuscripts to translate his work. The Septuagint is a faithful translation. Um, And so he would have no doubt largely pulled from that, but he also pulled from the Hebrew scriptures as well. Do do we know who wrote those 14 books? Do they still have the authors? Um. That's a, great, uh, that's a great question. So, um, for instance, the Maccabees, the book of Maccabees, you know, that's the history of the um, revolt against um, Antiochus Epiphanes and um, the Maccabean revolt, the, the wisdom literature. Uh, I don't know all the authors of, but I'm sure that you can find those. I'm sure Jewish scholars know that. That's an interesting question. should look into that. Does the Roman Catholic Church read it as um, So the Roman Catholic Church does use the Apocrypha. Uh, they use it, I believe, in some of their liturgy, and um, it is often quoted um. so I someone help me here I don't know that the Roman Catholic Church considers it well I would say this to me when, when, um, when you use it as part of your liturgy You are putting it equal with Scripture. So, and this was the problem with the Reformers. So it's like church tradition. Um, The Catholic Church holds church tradition issued by the popes, sitting, you know, in the chair, uh, equal with Scripture. They won't say that it supersedes Scripture, but it's equal to Scripture. And they fundamentally believe that the Pope can't say anything in his, in, in his official capacity that's going to violate Scripture because he's the vicar of Christ uh, on the earth. This was the problem the Reformers had. And this is why Sola Scriptura was one of the five pillars. Not Scripture and church tradition but Scripture alone. And they, they made it very clear that the Apocrypha was not part of the inspired canon of Scripture. Um, All right, uh, here we go. Mm-hmm. It, by the way, Jesus never quoted from the Apocrypha. He did quote from Malachi, but he, it, which is the last book in our Old Testament. Um, and and he, he quoted from the Old Testament scriptures, but he never quoted from the Apocrypha. Um, No, the Apocrypha, because the Jews didn't consider them inspired. They were not part of the Hebrew canon. That's right. They were, they were literature that the Hebrews kept, but they weren't considered inspired by God. So, um, yes... What are some of the scholarly resources for why we accept the Apocrypha as inspired? Ultimately, the inspired status of the books of Scripture is verified by the teaching, um, by the teaching church. And this is why Catholics and Orthodox maintain that these books are inspired. Catholics and Orthodox. Orthodox. So basically what they're saying is because the church says they're inspired, they are inspired. Um, that's from catholic.com. So the short answer in that very cursory Google search or duck-duck search is that they do. Um, but we do not, and the Reformers did not, which is why they're not in your Bible, um, I would guess the Revised Standard Version, which is used by, for instance, the Anglican Church, which is still very much, um, they're not Catholic, but they have a lot of Catholic tradition. In the Anglican Church, you know, if if we're still doing the timeline when we get to that part of history, the formation of the Anglican Church was to appease both Protestants and Catholics in England. And so the expression of the Anglican Church is very Catholic in many, many ways. Our our version of the Anglican Church in America is the Episcopal Church, though because the Episcopal Church has gone so woke, there are actually Anglican churches now here. Uh, We have families, I know families, who go to to Anglican churches. So you had a hand up? It was funded by the church, yeah, the church funded it, yeah yeah, yeah, so at this time, still, um, you have the Western Roman Empire and the Eastern Roman Empire. There still were Roman emperors, <clears throat> but by this time the church is you know this when you look at history, you see what happens with the Roman Empire, the the Empire goes from a military power, really they use the power of the church, the power of religion, to, to, to hold the empire together, which is why when, when, when it falls, when the empire and the last Roman emperor is deposed, the church is still there. The popes are still there. Um, and the church, and, and we'll see this through history, from that time... There, there began this power play between the church uh, and the emperors. Now, you know, when the Rome falls and you have these smaller kingdoms now popping up and you've got kings in these various regions, <clears throat> uh, and we'll get to the whole Holy Roman, who, just out of curiosity, who knows where the Holy Roman Empire was? centered geographically. Where was the Holy Roman Emperor from? Who said what? What'd you say? Yeah, Germany. So when you come to the Holy Roman Empire, those were that was all related to the, the kingdoms that had come up in in what we call Germany now from these Germanic tribes And um, there's a very interesting interaction between the popes and the Holy Roman Emperor. And the Pope in Rome christened or inaugurated Charlemagne uh, the Holy Roman Emperor on Christmas Day, not realizing what that was going to cause in terms of conflict. Who's got the ultimate authority? Does the Pope have the authority? Or does the emperor, the Holy Roman Emperor, have the authority? Who rules, the emperor or the church? And, and so that becomes uh, something that we're going to see that creates difficulties throughout history. But we're, we're, we're way before we get to that point yet. That's coming. All right, anything else? Um, we have one more saint we're going to look at tonight, one of my favorites. I don't know him. But this saint was born in 389. He was born in 389. He was born in Britain in 389. Huh? Patrick was born in a Roman. He was born in Roman Britain in 389. Patrick was not Irish. Patrick was a missionary to Ireland, but Patrick was not Irish. He was most likely of Celtic descent, maybe from Wales or Scotland, but he was not Irish. Uh, He was from Britain. Does anyone know where the Celts, the Celtic people originated from? How many of you thought that Celtic people originated in Ireland and Britain? They didn't. No. The Celtic people were Indo-European people. So they came out of Central Europe. You know, there where uh, Indian Asia kind of comes into what we would call Eastern Europe. In that Central European area, um, they were Indo-European people. And, and, you know, in many centuries before the birth of Christ, they migrated from those regions and then settled in the British Isles and Ireland. Um, and, and today, when we think of Celtic people, we think largely of the people of Ireland, the British Isles, the Scottish, the Welsh. And they are all Celtic uh, people in that they all came from these Indo-European Celts that really ultimately came from you know, what we would call the central part of Europe uh, today. And so, by 389, Rome had long conquered Britain, or most of it. Remember, Hadrian's Wall was up there, so the Scots would stay on their side of the wall and leave, leave everybody alone. Um, and so, Patrick's parents were, were devout Christians, His father was a deacon in the church. His grandfather had been a pastor. Uh, And Patrick, though, at a young age, did not value the faith of his parents. At age 16, Patrick, while he was playing on the beach on the seashore, was kidnapped by Irish pirates. He was taken back to Ireland from Britain. And he was sold into slavery, and he lived as an Irish slave for six years. It was an extremely harsh and grueling six years for Patrick. He took care of pigs. That was his job. And being raised in the faith, Patrick began to think long and hard about the things that his parents instilled in him. And he began to pray to the God that he kind of blew off as a young boy. And he began to pray to God. And he began to cry out to God that God would grant him his freedom. That somehow he would be able to escape the slavery. And God heard his prayers. Um, Listen to the words of Patrick. So Patrick also wrote... Uh, his an autobiography if you will he wrote his wrote out his testimony and as Patrick began to think long and hard about all that his parents had taught him in his current state it's kind of interesting I I think Patrick no doubt would have read and heard about the story of the prodigal son Um, and here he is keeping pigs as a slave in Ireland and Patrick uh, pins these words. He says, I was 16 years old and knew not the true God. But in that strange land, the Lord opened my unbelieving eyes. And altogether late, I called my sins to mind and was converted with my whole heart to the Lord my God, who regarded my low estate. And pity on my youth and ignorance and consoled me as a father consoles his children. Close quote. From this testimony, Patrick became a true believer in Christ. And for the next several years, Patrick learned how to pray. And he learned how to trust God. And his main prayer was that God would grant his request to be free once again. And the Lord heard his prayer. There's, uh, I I'm, didn't include it, but there's some interesting legend around this that Patrick, <clears throat> in a dream, uh, it was revealed to him that he was to go to the coast and and look for a boat. And however that all came about, Patrick traveled 200 miles to the coast of Ireland, and he found a ship. That would take him on as a worker, and they eventually, he didn't land immediately in Britain, um, but he eventually made his way back home, Um, and imagine the surprise of his parents when Patrick shows up at home after being gone for those many years. Uh, No doubt, his parents probably thought they would never see Patrick again, and Patrick probably thought many a time that he would never see his home again. So Patrick comes home. He's reunited with his family after six years of slavery and however much longer the many months it took for him to, to, to get back to his house, to his home. Once home, Patrick began to have strange dreams at night. And he would... Consistently began to dream that Irish children were calling him to come to Ireland and teach them the Word of God. Uh, and Patrick could not escape these dreams, these recurring dreams that he had. And so Patrick gave in to the call. He believed that God was calling him back to Ireland. And after spending six grueling years as a slave in Ireland, Patrick submits to the call of God. In 432, Patrick, uh, after receiving training in France, so he goes to France to be trained as a priest, to be ordained, to get proper training, to go and establish a work blessed by the church in Ireland. So after his training in France, in 432, Patrick returns to Ireland. And for nearly 30 years, Patrick faithfully serves and ministers to the Irish. Um, Ireland was ruled by tribal chiefs. The Irish were a very warlike and violent people. They were not afraid of violence. Um, This is, I think, it's interesting when you think about, so Patrick wasn't the first Christian missionary to go to Ireland, but he was the first one to be successful. And the reason most Christian missionaries that went to Ireland could not be successful is because they couldn't deal with the Irish. Because the Irish were too belligerent, too violent, too unruly. They were ruled by tribal chiefs. There was no central government, and these tribal chiefs were fighting, warring all the time. And it was violent, very violent. And so Patrick lives there six years, and he knows who these people are. He's, to, to survive six years of slavery in Ireland and live in the elements and have someone basically treat you like one of the animals you're taking care of, Patrick had to develop a toughness. And so he wasn't afraid to go back to Ireland. He knew exactly who the people were that he was going to. He lived among them under the worst conditions for six years. And so he returns to these um, chieftains and these tribes in Ireland who spiritually were extremely superstitious. They believed in all kinds of, you know, um, mythological creatures and leprechauns. All of that, you know, spirits and um, the Druids were these pagan priests who worshipped nature. Many of the Celts were were Druids, and so they had all kinds of various spiritual beliefs and practices, none of them Christian, um, for the most part, when Patrick got there. Uh, But Patrick goes, and Patrick, enduring all that he did, I mean, death threats, I mean, he endured a lot. Uh, preaching the gospel there. The the legend goes that, and I'm really sad that when we went to Ireland, we did not go to the Hill of Tara. So the Hill of Tara, which is just north of Dublin in Ireland, was was the hill where all the, the Irish kings or the Irish chieftains would come together. And the legend says that it was on the Hill of Tara that Patrick appears before the high king and in in explaining the trinity, Patrick gets a shamrock and he uses a shamrock, a three-leaf clover, a three-leaf shamrock to explain the trinity to the Irish tribal king. Um, Is that a true story? Supposedly it is. I have no reason to doubt it, it seems like it would make perfect sense if you're trying to find a way to explain this mysterious doctrine to a bunch of uh, Irish chieftains and guys who are used to fighting about everything. And so Patrick um, started over 300 churches in Ireland, and it is said that he baptized over 120 converts to Christianity. Uh, Patrick died in 461 of natural causes, leaving the church very strong in Ireland. Now, uh, we're not there yet, but let me just, while we're talking about Patrick in Ireland. So Patrick goes to Ireland before the fall of the Roman Empire, of the Western Roman Empire. And before the Western Roman Empire falls, Patrick goes to Ireland. And in his lifetime, in his 30 years of ministering to the Irish, Patrick establishes a very strong church in Ireland. And uh, we know that there were monasteries. We went to one of them when we went to Ireland. It was called uh, Glendalough. And, and the monastery there dates back to the fourth uh, to the fifth century. Um, uh, I believe Saint Kevin was the guy who came there around 500, the year 500 after Patrick's death. But Saint Kevin was able to come to Ireland because of what Patrick did. So Patrick paves the way now for for other priests and other missionaries to come. And all these churches that were planted and all these converts, they needed priests. They needed men of God to come and disciple these converts. And so what happens in with the fall of the Roman Empire and the barbarian hordes that basically take over Europe, and now Europe enters into the Dark Ages where... You spend your days trying to figure out how you're going to survive. You don't have time to paint. You don't have time to sculpt. You don't have time to write books. You don't have time to sit in your garden and meditate because you're too busy trying to survive. Because there is no law. There is no Pax Romana. There is no government, so to speak. Europe devolved into chaos. Largely, not not in every case. And and so centers of learning, libraries were destroyed, were burned. Um, Places were sacked and pillaged. And so there were still libraries, but they were fewer and far between. And so what happened uh, with the Irish secluded there on their little island. The Romans never made it to Ireland. The Romans never conquered Ireland The Irish had the church, thanks to Patrick, and Christianity flourished in Ireland. And when the Dark Ages hit Europe, and Europe devolves into illiteracy, and books and the classics are no more, well, unbeknownst to a lot of people, the Irish had been collecting these books. And in their monasteries, they took the great works of Western literature, and they took the scriptures, And they took these things and they meticulously copied them so that when the Dark Ages are in full force, what do the Irish do? The Irish send their missionaries back into Europe, preaching the gospel, reestablishing the gospel across Europe. There's an interesting, there's more than one book, but a very interesting book, if you like history, is Thomas Cahill's book, called How the Irish Saved Civilization, and it chronicles basically how this happened. Um, And so that God used Patrick to lay the foundation for that strong church to be in place so that when the Dark Ages descend upon Europe, the Irish are positioned to be able to send missionaries back into Europe and reseed the gospel all across Europe. So you have monasteries in Switzerland, who were established by Irish monks, and the Irish monks were not afraid to go back into Europe and deal with the barbarians because there was no more, no more peop, no, There were no people more barbarous than the Irish were to begin with. So they weren't afraid of conflict. They weren't afraid. They might get beat up if they go to Europe. They weren't afraid of that. And so it's a fascinating, fascinating history. Um, so we can thank the Irish. Yes, that's right. That, that young boy playing on the beach captured by pirates, who knew he would be used in such a way? And I would submit that Patrick does, did not have a clue even at his death at what his work, his 30 years of work in Ireland would mean for the world. Yeah. All right, any, any thoughts, any questions?